Hello and welcome to this week's Thursday Top 5. I'm Paige. I'm Anna. We're so excited to share some headlines with you this week, but before we dive in, we have some updates. And then we also just wanted to give a little announcement that we're so excited. We're doing a very cool activity tomorrow, so stay tuned for our Monday Chatter check-in next week. Yes, I'm so, so excited. We're we'll, we'll, we'll maybe give a preview on our Instagram account, so follow us at Curated Chatter in case you don't already. Be sure to check those stories. Yes. But first up, we have an update from a headline that I think we mentioned a few times over the past month or so. But as reported by Forbes, quote, $42 million Basquiat becomes most expensive Western artwork to sell at auction in Asia. So the painting by Basquiat is titled Warrior, and it shows a male figure standing upright and holding a sword. The painting is from 1982, which is um, widely considered to be one of the best years of Basquiat's career. And the work easily beat out the previous record, which was $27.6 million for a Richter painting that sold in Hong Kong last year. And the Hong Kong Christie's auctions have held up surprisingly well across this past year, which was reported in our Basel's annual report that we discussed on last week's episode. So you should also check that out if you haven't heard it. And it really demonstrates how important customers in Asia have become to this high-end Western art market. Yeah, the report found that China surpassed the U.S. to become the world's largest art market. And it's so crazy because you really do think of Basquiat, or at least I do, as this New York artist. Yes, 100%. I also think it's so interesting. The There is another article in the New York Times, obviously, because everyone's talking about this story today. Mm-hmm. And that article brought up the fact that even though, like, yes, this is the most expensive western work to be sold in asia asian collectors have paid much more than this amount of money but in the u.s so Mm -hmm. like even though like yes 41 point or yeah like 42 million dollars is a lot and it definitely beat a record like there have been other western works that asian collectors have that have really been a lot more expensive than this one that is what can be so confusing about statistics like these is that they make it so so specific sometimes Mm -hmm. that you forget on a general scale like it's is it's a great sale it's so exciting but it might not be as exciting as the article like hypes it up to be exactly and I feel like obviously the auction houses have a say in like like yes what kind of headlines are putting out yes Um, But I think we are ready to dive into the headlines for the week. Yes, our first headline of the day comes to us from Artnet News. In an op-ed, it was published that, quote, in 2018, Christie's gave away 300 free NFTs. A few people who didn't throw them out are now selling them for over $10,000. That's crazy. I honestly didn't know NFTs existed before three weeks ago. Recently. Yeah. There's been a boom. Yeah, this is wild. (laughs) So in 2018, Christie's established their Art and Tech Summit, which is an annual conference focused on exploring emerging technologies and their potential impact on the art world. The theme in 2018 was blockchain. As part of the gift back for attendees of the summit, a series of NFTs were distributed as a sort of experiment. Artist Robbie Barat who was at the time only 18 years old, uploaded a series of works which consisted of seven nude portraits onto the platform called Super Rare. And nude portrait number seven was chosen as like the work to be included in this gift bag. Mm -hmm. But the artist did not feel comfortable distributing an edition of 300 because the other ones in the series were editions of one. So that dichotomy would 
like create an issue and value later on. Mm -hmm. So instead, it was decided that the work would be split into 300 separate layers, which when all overlaid would create the final portrait. So everyone's work is one. Yeah, part of the. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so crazy. And it's so cool. But if some people threw theirs out, or like can't find it anymore, then the portrait will never be complete. But yeah, so each of the layers was created into a single NFT in addition of one to make sure that people could claim their artworks with the minimum possible effort. And each gift bag included a gift card with two codes. The first was a crypto wallet's public key, which just serves serves as a username. And the second was a private key, which is a password. And then the private key would need to be like scratched off to be revealed it's like those gift cards you get where you have to scratch off the yes. code to like claim it it's yeah. the same technology <laughs> love that but similar to a lottery ticket all that was needed to claim the work was these two codes and then you would see like what piece of the puzzle you got basically mm-hmm. and throughout the summit attendees were reminded to not throw away this card and I think in the article said someone was even offering to buy other people's. Oh my god! Like in the moment, but only twelve of the three hundred were ever claimed. Yeah, so that's what I was saying before. Though now the portrait is never going to be complete. <laughs> but almost three years later, with the NFT market experiencing a major boom and like just like exploding all of a sudden, the artist has sold numerous works for over $100,000 and one of the 12 claimed NFTs was resold last year for 13000 And some, I think, are now for sale because people have kind of clued into this. Yeah. But last year, after this story was shared through a blog post on the Super Rare website, the unclaimed artworks were given this title of the Lost Robbies, which is cute. That is cute. And people have apparently been searching everywhere for this misplaced gift card they were given almost like four years ago. I mean, same because if you get something for free and then all of a sudden it's worth over $10,000, like you definitely want to find it. A hundred percent. And so far, four people have been able to find their cards, but none of the four have claimed them online yet. Why? I I don't know. (laughs) But like good for them. I guess like it's like very fascinating and it's just, I'm just confused by like how it's never going to be complete. I'm really worked up about that. (laughs) But yeah, I I just also think it's interesting that some of them will never be able to be claimed. And it brings up so many like larger questions about the value and the importance of NFTs. Like what is it really worth if you're not able to access it? Right. I honestly just like hate this whole NFT craze and I don't, I really don't understand it. So I wish there weren't like so many headlines about it every time we, um, you know, go on different like news platforms. Right. But I'm happy to keep reporting on them to just keep our public in the know. I'm just hoping it goes away soon. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I I just don't even know if it is going to go away. Like, it's so confusing. And there's so many weird factors. I think it won't go away. It's just going to go elsewhere. Like, leave the art world. Yeah, or like, not necessarily leave the art world. But I think there's going to be a niche for it in the art world that will not be that I will not be a part of. And someone who is like a very traditional conservative collector, Mm -hmm. I don't see them being excited by this. No, honestly, it's what we were saying about the frick the other day. People who were older could barely pull up their QR codes thing on their phones to like read the labels on the wall. So how? who is buying these (laughs) NFTs? Like, (laughs) 
no idea. Not you. Not me. I hate them. <laughs> I think we're ready to move on, I though. Am. I've been ready. <laughs> Headline number two comes to us from Hyperallergic. Quote, Artist Coalition announces 10-week strike against MoMA. Following protests against MoMA trustees with alleged ties to unethical businesses, a wide coalition of artists and activist groups is planning a 10-week-long series of protest actions and community-led conversations targeting the leadership of MoMA. Um, the 10-week strike will begin on April 9th, and the announcement was authored by groups including MoMA Divest, Forensic Architecture, Decolonized Displays, Curators and Educators for Decolonization, among others. What's also really interesting is that the coalition consulted former MoMA employees. So it's coming from both like internal and external sources. Yeah, that is really interesting. The coalition, whose full name is International Imagination of Anti-National Anti-Imperialist Feelings, IF. <laughs> it's like abbreviated as I-I-A-A-F. And I'm not really sure how I one F. would say that. I don't think it's super catchy. EF. <laughs> uh, but it calls to dismantle the museum in its current form and its dependency on billionaire donors and reimagine its role in society. And in recent weeks, MoMA has faced mounting pressure to separate itself from its chairman, Liam Black, for his former ties with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. However, the museum has not announced plans to sever ties, and I think that's really what's pushing this forward. No, for sure, especially because he had to leave like this equity firm this week because of he said he was being harassed because of his ties to Epstein, but like maybe he should just also leave MoMA on his own will or or I don't know, like, what's going to happen with that. But. I think he has been, like, kicked out of basically every other organization exactly. he's been so, involved in. Exactly. But in a statement made by the coalition, they said that, quote, we refuse to acknowledge the separation of the museum from the rest of society. We see MoMA as existing on the same plane as the violence of the ruling class that has controlled it. So then in these 10 weeks that overlap with the strike which are now called 10 Weeks of Art Action and Conservation. They will include training sessions, writing projects, campaigns, direct actions at the museum and other locations. Yes, and they will also organize a series of virtual and in-person conversations focusing on collective research, archival investigation, and speculative vision concerned with post-MoMA futures. And at the end of these 10 weeks, the activists will reconvene to discuss a just transition to a post-MOMA future that prioritizes workers and communities. So this is definitely a story that we'll have to do a follow-up on in 10 weeks to see like the impact, not only the impact that it had, but like what the next step is because are they just going to do this and then like everything's going to resume as normal? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It also is just so, um, I think a lot of the points that they touch on are kind of abstract and they're mm -hmm. like, oh, we're going to do archival investigations, but like of what? Like what exactly is this exploring? Like, and, like what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, it's exactly. There are too many uh, unknowns here, but I'm definitely very interested to see where this goes. I also think it's interested that so many different groups are involved in the strike because yeah. I feel like they all in a way would have their own agenda for like what they would like to see MoMA do in the future so how those agendas are gonna overlap and what's actually gonna happen will be interesting to see I also think like their language I totally understand where they're coming from but a lot of people who have a lot of money have also done a lot of good things for the museum and for 
society in general. But for example, this week it was announced that Agnes Gond has promised 900 works to MoMA and no one's talking about that. She's just donating them. Like some of them she already gave to MoMA. So like, yes, I understand where this is coming from. But at the same time, there are other conversations that need to be had. I think it's like the point that museums cannot exist from their ticket sales. No, exactly. Moving on to our third headline, which comes to us from the art newspaper, where it was reported that, quote, the movement is unstoppable. African scholars and activists hail German plan to return Benin bronzes. So Germany is on course to be the first country to return to Nigeria sculptures looted by British troops from the royal palace of the kingdom of Benin in 1897. Last week, a German foreign ministry delegation visited Benin City to negotiate an agreement that would involve permanent restitutions from German museums, and the deal is expected to be finalized by the summer. Germany is taking the lead in acting in cooperation with the planned Museum of West African Art in Benin City in creating like a sort of shared structure to be able to return cultural heritage. The Benin bronzes are particularly important. They are probably the most known and celebrated pieces of art. And as spoils of war, they return has a lot of significance. And thousands of artifacts were stolen during the attack on the Benin Royal Palace, including reliefs, shrines and carved ivory artifacts. They were widely traded and acquired by museums across Europe and in the U.S. And in Germany alone, around 25 institutions hold looted Benin bronzes. So it's not like one institution is agreeing to send back their work. It's all the works across the country. Which I think is so cool and so proactive of them. In 2017, the decade-long pursuit for restitution gained a lot of momentum when French President Macron pledged in a speech in Burkina Faso to ensure the return of African patrimony in France to Africa within five years. And then since then, several other countries have taken steps towards returning these looted artifacts, but the process is still so long and so complicated. Like we just said, it involves so many institutions and so many countries. It's not like one person can make the decision to send it back and it will be over. Yes. And enforcing the fact that it is a complicated process on both ends of the controversy, Nigerian partners, including the Oba of Benin, the Edo state government and the National Commission for Museums and Monuments have established a foundation, the Legacy Restoration Trust, to manage the restituted objects and a planned new museum for them. And although other countries were more present in Africa during colonization than Germany, they have been the most deliberate in terms of correcting the errors of history. So hopefully this will be able to spark inspiration in other countries, especially considering the fact that there now is a planned museum. A lot of times an argument for a country to not return works of art is that there is not a correct or safe place for Mm -hmm. them to be displayed in the country from which they were stolen, which is like a very iffy debate to make, but it's often is the one that countries choose. Did you learn that in Arts of Africa, Columbia University? Perhaps. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, but you're right. I think with this trust and this whole museum plan, they, there should be more of an initiative to return the works to their rightful owners. Hopefully it will be a positive trend. Yes. And our next headline is perfect because it also discusses bronzes. But a different type of bronze. Yes. So our fourth headline comes to us from Artnet News, where it was reported that, quote, 
Rainstorms in Greece helped archaeologists uncover a 3,000-year-old bronze idol of a bull that may have been an offering to Zeus. So torrential downpours in the small town of Olympia, Greece, have yielded an incredible discovery of fully intact 3,000-year-old bronze bull figurine. The Greek culture ministry announced the remarkable find on March 19th, calling it an accidental discovery that occurred when archaeologists were surveying the site where the ancient Olympic Games were held. The small sculpture measuring about two inches in length, so it's truly just tiny, was found by Sakharula Levitorias, an archaeologist who saw one of its horns protruded from the ground, according to the ministry. That must be so exciting just to be like walking on a site and see a little <laughs> something sticking up and just have no clue like what's to I'm come. I'm really surprised he like found it because bronze, you know, like how it changes color, like in There's color. There's like a patina. When, exactly. So I feel like it would be easily confused with just like a branch or like something like else. Like a leaf. Yes, exactly. But preliminary results indicate that the bronze sculpture dates to the geometric period of Greek art, from around 1050 to 700 BCE and would have been presented as an offering to Zeus along with thousands of other votive offerings at a sanctuary. According to an article by The Guardian, the sculpture was uncovered near the Altis, which is a sacred grove, and bulls and horses were very important animals in ancient Greece as they acquired a special role in the worship of the gods of antiquity. And in Greek mythology, Zeus was enamored with a woman named Europa and transformed himself into a bull and took her to the island of Crete where she had his sons. So it fits in with the narrative. Exactly. And last year, Paige and I went to a talk at the IFA, which is the Institute of Fine Arts at NYU. And it was like, we went as part of our senior seminar. We had to attend some art talks. Yes. To immerse ourselves in the art scene. Yes. Um, even though we were already fully immersed. But um, it was really interesting. We had to get it approved by our professor. And it was all about excavations in Greece and how um, they happened. But the woman who was leading the talk actually told us that she found, well, not only her, but her and her team found some steps and it turned out to be an amphitheater. It wasn't like just steps but like rather seats for the amphitheater and it was just so interesting because they were only also able to find those steps and like this whole new like site because it rained so much that um like part of a hill like collapsed basically it's crazy to think that things can be hidden for so long and all it takes is like enough rain yeah to be able to no exactly it. especially things like as cool as it is the fact that they survive for so long. But yeah, I'm so excited to see if they find any other things because I feel like when they find one thing, like they often like... They keep just, like, digging and like it grows and grows. Yeah, it's crazy. exactly. And finally, our fifth headline today comes from the art newspaper where it was announced that, quote, Uffizi Gallery's Botticelli masterpieces currently kept in storage are bound for Medici Villa in the Tuscan Hills. So masterpieces by Botticelli could be taken out of storage at the Uffizi Galleries and shown at the Villa of Correggi in the hills outside Florence as part of a new initiative that will turn Tuscany into a giant museum. The works are set to be loaned as part of the Uffizi Diffusi, which translates to Scattered Uffizi, and it is their new initiative, which involves exhibiting works from the Uffizi collection at around 100 sites in the greater Tuscany region by 2024. The Uffizi galleries have about two years to work on the installation that they will put out, but since they are the only museum in the world that holds works by Botticelli in storage, it's extremely likely that some of them will be a part of this 
display. Yeah, and the villa, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, was bought in 1417 by the Medici family, which were the rulers of the Renaissance Florence and the preeminent art patrons of their age. And the goal of this new initiative is to attract tourists away from Florence, which prior to the COVID-19 pandemic was overwhelmed with visitors. In 2018, more than 4 million visitors visited the Uffizi. Yeah, this is very much needed. That was actually the year I was in Florence for my study abroad, and I had a class in the Uffizi. And it was so hard to have classes sometimes because there were so many tourists and they were so disrespectful. A lot of people were not even there to see the art. They were just there to say they've been there and they wouldn't let people who were actually interested in the art like me and my class, um, you know, like enjoy the experience. So I think this initiative is very much needed. And it's needed all across Italy in particular. The tourism is very problematic. Yeah, like Venice too. I, I mean everywhere, but like, it yes. just destroys the city and it destroys the experience. Like there's yes. nothing worse. When I was in Rome and I would take the train into Florence and get out like with my class or just to visit you. <laughs> um, the like crowds of people when you leave, it just mm-hmm. like you can't even see the city. No, exactly. But the pieces will be linked to the places where they're exhibited, which I think is so cool because this will provide historical and artistic artistic context for each piece so a potential site for instance is the island of Elba where a display of works related to Napoleon will go on show and for context Elba is where Napoleon was exiled to um, from France and the heart of the initiative will be the Medici Villa Ambrosiana in Montelupo Fiorentino, which is about 20 kilometers west of Florence. The villa was until recently a psychiatric hospital, and the Uffizi galleries have hundreds of work in storage that originally belonged to this villa, so they'll bring them back to their original location, which is so exciting. That is very exciting, and another possible location is a villa that up until recently was a spa, so I think like it's not only about the works going back to where they belong or just like getting them out of storage but kind of it's so exciting to see that these places at once hosted art will go back to that after being like spas or hospitals or just like abandoned and I think the craziest part of this story for me was the fact that the Uffizi has Botticelli's in, in storage. storage. Well, I think they, their collection is just so massive and like there's not that much space in the galleries. Like they, they are large, but you can't have everything out on display, especially I feel like some of the works are so big and require so much wall space that you just can't put everything up. And I think it's so great that they are revealing this because it, it will be a reason for people to maybe wouldn't venture out, but like they're yeah. going to want to see these mystery Botticelli's. Exactly. I think it'll be so cool. And I'm just, as always, hoping we can visit. So I think that's it for our headlines. But before we go, our emerging story of the week is brought to you by Artnet News, which reported that, quote, Sotheby's is selling 200 of the world's earliest photographs by 19th century innovator Henry Fox Talbot. Sotheby's will auction off almost 200 photos by the artist, one of the inventors of the medium in New York next month. I think this is a very meaningful um, headline for Paige, who not only loves photographs, but also auction houses. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that collection will be offered as a single lot, which is kind of like the warrior thing. And it is expected to fetch between 300000 and $500,000, which is a lot for photographs. 
Featuring both individual prints and photographic albums such as The Pencil of Nature and Sun Pictures in Scotland, the sale offers a glimpse of daily life in the 1840s with both indoor and outdoor scenes, portraits, still lifes, and landscapes. Yeah, and according to Sotheby's, the photographs represent arguably the most important lot of a 19th century photograph to ever come to market. We actually had a conversation about this, like, last week Mm -hmm. because so many people think of photographs and they think of very modern photographs and when you're at the auction house some of the most exciting auctions for the photographs department are these vintage photographs because they can't be reprinted like a Leibowitz or something that's being produced right now so Mm -hmm. they're so rare and they can be so easily damaged by something like the sun so if it's hanging in someone's apartment yeah it can lose so much value so easily no it's crazy and because they're on paper they like crease so easily and like the corners like get damaged very often so yeah but I think that's all I have to say (laughs) that's it for me (laughs) be sure to follow us on instagram at curated chatter and to get a little hint of what we're up to before Monday's Chatter Check-In drops next week. Yes. Thanks for tuning in. Bye. See you next week.